Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. From the mid-15th century to the mid-16th century, there were 10 queens consort of England beginning with Margaret of Anjou, married to Henry VI, through to Catherine Parr, the sixth wife of Henry VIII. Each one of these remarkable queens used jewels and jewellery to establish and enhance their personal and royal identities. Now, jewels help us chart a queen's central life events, courtship, marriage and motherhood, all the way through to her death, and can help illuminate how these women each navigated their way through their personal and political relationships. Jewels were a central part of a queen's symbolic language, with which she could signify her status and her legitimacy, and they could also be a way to show familial and cultural ties. They were emblems of a queen's power, wealth, and authority. And so they can help us understand the ways in which each of these fascinating women found their own particular paths as queens of England. me today to discuss this is Dr. Nicola Tallis, historian of three books on women of this period, Crown of Blood, The Deadly Inheritance of Lady Jane Grey, Uncrowned Queen, The Fateful Life of Margaret Beaufort, and Elizabeth's Rival, The Tumultuous Tale of Lettuce Knowles, Countess of Leicester. Her most recent work is based on her doctoral research. It's called All the Queen's Jewels, 1445-1548 power, majesty and display and it examines the personal and political connections of queens through the lens of their jewellery. Dr. Nicola Tallis, welcome to Not Just the Tudors, and I'm absolutely delighted to talk to you about your wonderful work on jewels. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to be able to speak to you about jewels. Can we start by thinking about what studying jewels tells us about queens in this period? I'm so fascinated by what sort of prompted you to look into this and what the study tells us, I suppose, individually and collectively. What can it help us understand about the role of queens and the nature of queenship in this period? Yeah, I mean, I think that jewels are a really understudied facet of queenship during this period. And it's really fascinating because actually when you think that you know these queens, we're talking about queens like the six wives of Henry VIII, who are well-known characters in our history. And 
I think when you look at them through the prism of their jewels, you come to learn a lot about them in terms of their personalities and also about the messages that they were eager to convey as consorts. So I think that this is a really important period of queenship in its own right. And when you come to study these women through their jewels, you come to learn a lot about them in terms of the messages of magnificence that they're trying to convey to their contemporaries, the messages that they're trying to evoke to their courtiers, their husbands, their families. So it's been really fascinating, actually, because it has, in my opinion, really shed new light on these women and really highlighted their importance within the context of their own courts, but also in Europe as well, I think. Did jewels have something of a political currency as a symbol of right? So could they be used to establish or defend a queen's status? Yeah, absolutely. So they were what I like to call tangible tools, really, that enhanced and enabled a queen to fulfil her role as a consort and really underpinned her magnificence, underpinned her status, were a rite of passage in some ways. So they were things that were given or acquired by the Queen when she assumed her role and were really pivotal in terms of helping her to carry out that role. And you look at foreign-born as well as English queens in your study. I wonder whether foreign queens like Anne of Cleves, for example, would have been more reliant on jewels as symbols of wealth and power to establish themselves, or whether it's the opposite and it's those who have been raised at the English court and everyone knows their families, do they have to work harder to use these tangible tools? I think it's a bit of both. So Anne of Cleves, who you mentioned, is a really interesting example because we're very lucky that we've got a surviving set of her household accounts from her term as queen. And she... I think is a really fascinating character. And what I think was so intriguing was the fact that we can see that in just the few short months that she was a queen, she was spending an enormous sum of money on jewels. And to me, that is very indicative of the fact that, yes, as a foreign-born queen, she was trying to use her jewels as a way of making a statement and as a way of trying to impress her subjects. So we see, for example, that she is commissioning a great seal for herself, that she's also ordering jeweled saddles, which again suggests that she wants to be seen and she really wants to impress So I think that's really interesting. Or I suppose it could just be the case that she recognised that Henry wasn't too keen on her and she thought she might as well make the most of her time as queen by ordering jewels. Who knows? But no, I think that there is certainly an element of trying to impress there. But then we've also got Catherine Parr, for example, of course, Henry VIII's last wife, who we know also was spending huge amounts of money on jewels and who was very, very conscious of the projection of the royal image. And we know that she was very interested in themes of royalty, which pop up in the design of her jewels. So again, I think that this is a very deliberate attempt on Catherine's part to reinforce 
her newly heightened status, particularly important because she's come from relatively humble origins. So I think we see examples in both the cases of foreign-born queens and English-born queens of them really using those jewels to try and convey some kind of message and make a statement. Can we talk a bit about what these things look like? I'm really interested to think about the styles of jewellery that were common in this period. Yeah, the sad thing is that there are very few surviving examples of jewels that were owned by these particular queens that we have, which is a tragedy, although we do have surviving contemporary examples in the British Museum and in the V&A to give us an idea of the physical makeup of these pieces. And then, of course, we are very blessed that we have portraiture, which is a really vital tool when thinking about how these pieces looked. For example, we've got the amazing portrait of Catherine Parr that's up for auction at Sotheby's, which (laughs) I think is really, well, it's an important portrait within its own right, but it's certainly important when thinking about the jewels that queens owned during this period. So, for example, we get a really close look at the crown brooch that Catherine is wearing in that portrait, which also appears in her Master John full-length portrait in the National Portrait Gallery. And that also appears in Catherine's inventory. So we know from the inventory that it contains a certain amount of diamonds, but from that portrait, we can actually visualise exactly what this piece looked like, exactly how the diamonds were displayed. And these pieces must have just been dazzling and obviously a tragedy that we don't have them, but fortunate that we do have those sorts of images to paint a very vivid picture of what these jewels looked like. And do we have any sense, therefore, with the evidence that we're going on, about how there might be changes in fashion with regards to jewellery or changes in uses of stone? You know, did stones have symbolic meanings, for example? Absolutely. So, There had been this long-standing belief that, particularly in the medieval period, that certain types of stones contained magical or medicinal properties. For example, it was believed that sapphires were thought to help prevent drunkenness. And (laughs) I'm not quite sure if that worked. And things like rubies were thought to help combat lust. Pearls, which later, of course, become heavily associated with Elizabeth I, were thought to convey power and authority. And really, I don't think that those beliefs ever really altered throughout this period. So that even with the Reformation, that is a consistent. And we see later in Catherine Parr's inventory that she owns a piece of so-called unicorn's horn, which suggests that she believed in the magical powers that were ascribed to certain objects. But we do certainly see a change in terms of the style of jewels in this period. For example, collars, gold collars, which had been very, very popular in the medieval period and the early Tudor period, by the time of Catherine Parr's queenship, even before then, those sorts of things have gone out of fashion. And instead, we see pendants that start to become more popular instead. Initial jewels, those are something that are very popular during this period, of course, very highly and closely associated with Anne Boleyn. But actually, 
predate her by some way. So they start to come into popularity in the latter part of the 14th century. And then we see things like bracelets as well, which start to become more popular later in the Tudor period. So we do see a most definite shift in the change of styles, but certainly with the use of stones and their beliefs, that's quite consistent. Talking of pendants, people will have heard of the recent discovery by Charlie Clark, a metal detectorist, of a pendant bearing the initials of Catherine of Aragon and Henry VIII, and that the words toujours always on it. What did you make of that? I mean, what a beautiful example of a Tudor jewel for starters, an incredible discovery. And it's something that still has lots of secrets, I'm sure, that we hopefully will find out more about in the future. For my own part, I suspect that it probably was, as has been suggested, a prize, a jousting prize, a tournament prize. I've certainly never come across a jewel like that. But even though it is beautiful, it was very crudely made, which does suggest that it was made in rather a hurry, which I think lends support to the fact that it probably was a tournament prize. But one can imagine winning a tournament and being awarded something like that. How incredible and what a personal piece to have the King and Queen's initials as well. So Yes, hopefully we will find out more about that in the future. But I should say as well that it does contain enameled decoration, which was very much in keeping with contemporary fashions as well. So it was in some ways, although I say I've never seen a piece like it, the way in which it was fashioned to some extent was very much in keeping with the styles of the time. And it gives us an amazing insight into what academics call material culture, the stuff of the past, the way a jewel like that might have been given as a prize is eye-opening to us and immediately recasts the period in a certain way. It does. And it makes you wonder what other discoveries are there out there just waiting to be found and what more can we learn about this period from pieces like that. It is, as you say, yeah, a wonderful piece of material culture from this period. Can we talk about the distinction between crown jewels and a queen's personal collection? In your book, you examine Catherine Parr's two inventories, one of which lists her personal goods and the other her queen's effects. Did these serve a wholly different purpose? Yeah, they absolutely did. So the queen's jewels were jewels that were owned by the crown rather than the queen personally. And they were effectively the tools that were given to a queen when she assumed her role and technically would be returned to the crown when her role came to an end, whether through death or annulment, whatever the case may be. Whereas the personal jewels were items that were owned by the Queen personally that she may have bought with her prior to her royal marriage and that she could keep hold of when that came to an end. And generally as well, these pieces were more functional as well as decorative, but they were of lesser value and would be used generally by the Queen on certainly a regular, if not a daily basis. We see an example of one of these pieces 
of the Queen's jewels handed down in portraiture. There may be more that you can mention, but the one that comes to my mind is the portrait we have of Catherine of Aragon wearing a brooch with the letters IHS, the first three letters of the name of Jesus in Greek. And then we see Jane Seymour wearing it. Talk to me about this piece or this practice of handing jewels down and what we can read into it, if anything. Yes. So I think it's very tempting in the case of Catherine and Jane to think that perhaps this was a deliberate move on Jane's part, because we know, of course, that she was a great admirer of Catherine of Aragon. We know, of course, also that she was a Catholic and that her faith meant a great deal to her. So it's very interesting to think that, yes, that was a deliberate strategy on Jane's part. But it is also important to say that it was quite common for jewels to be handed down from queen to queen because the treasury, the king's treasury is not always full. (laughs) And particularly in Henry VIII's case, he doesn't necessarily have the funds available to buy each queen a new set of jewels. So it was common for jewels to be recycled and for queens to effectively handle secondhand goods and reuse them or recast them for their own needs and purposes. So we do see that in this period. And we do see that in other examples of portraits where, again, talking about that Holbein portrait of Jane Seymour, where we see her wearing this beautiful pendant attached to a necklace and that later appears in the inventories of Catherine Howard and Catherine Parr and also in a portrait of Catherine Howard. So I think that's suggestive of the fact that this is either a highly prized piece or a very valuable piece, probably the latter very valuable. And again, there are other examples. So we see a tall cross or a three-sided T-shaped cross example, which appears in both portrait miniatures of Jane Seymour and Catherine Parr. There have been suggestions that piece may even have originated with Catherine of Aragon. So it's certainly not uncommon for queens to own jewels that had been previously the property of their predecessors. And yes, that certainly occurs a lot in the cases of the six wives of Henry VIII. And would all queens consort have worn the crown jewels and on what occasion? Yes. So all queens up until Jane Seymour would have had access to the crown jewels in terms of coronation regalia, crowns, scepters that were used primarily at coronations. However, there is no evidence that the latter four wives of Henry VIII ever used crowns or scepters. And of course, this can be partially explained by the fact that the latter four of these wives never had a coronation for whatever reason. And also representations of queens did undergo a huge shift in this period as well. So we know that crown wearing days, for example, which were common in the medieval period at which the king and his consort might appear wearing their crown and perhaps holding their scepter. Those sort of begin to decline in popularity in the reign of Henry VII. So there's no evidence to suggest that Catherine of Aragon or Anne Boleyn, for example, ever underwent any of that kind of ceremony. So we know that queens primarily wore crown jewels 
for coronations. But yes, after Anne Boleyn, there's no evidence that any of her successors ever did so. I'm struck by the fact that you have written a book called Uncrowned Queen about Margaret Beaufort, but actually we have four more here, (laughs) Uncrowned Queens. Yeah, exactly, exactly. We do. Join me, Dallas Campbell, on Patented, a podcast by History Hit, where we bring you the fascinating histories of the world's most impactful inventions. We uncover the exceptional stories behind everyday objects. Snakes and ladders is really a game about a karmic journey through stages of existence towards liberation. Look back in time to understand technologies of the future. One of the really interesting things about it is that it showed just how hard AI in the real world really is. And we examine unexpected origins. Who or what invented sex? Yeah, fish. Fish were the ones that invented copulation and made sex intimate for the first time. For the answer to those questions and a whole lot more, subscribe to Patented on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Join me for new episodes every Wednesday and Sunday. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Your work finishes in 1548, so it's slightly unfair to ask you about Queen's Regnant, Mary and Elizabeth, but do you know if there is a difference in the sort of jewels that Queen's Consort wore and then Queen's Regnant wore in the later half of the 16th century? Yeah, so that absolutely is. So what is quite interesting is that we have an inventory of Mary I's jewels which is recorded shortly after she accedes to the throne, so in August 1553. And this inventory is almost identical to Catherine Parr's queenly collection of jewels. So we know that Mary inherited Catherine Parr's collection, but what's also quite interesting is that she gives a lot of these jewels away. And 
One of the reasons that I think explains this is because, of course, she also, in, Mary also inherits all of Henry VIII's jewels, all of Edward VI's jewels. So regnant queens are using their jewels to try and display and demonstrate sovereign power as opposed to earlier consorts who have been also trying to display magnificence, but within the boundaries of being consorts. So they're allowing their husband to shine. They're allowing their husband to take the lead role. Whereas Queen's Regnant are in charge of their own destinies. They are in charge of their own futures and shaping their own identities as Regnants. So we do see Mary I and Elizabeth using a lot of the jewels that had been used and owned by their father, Henry VIII, as opposed to his wives. And I think that is quite key in their queenships because it is a way of them associating themselves, although they are women, associating themselves with their father, who was the epitome of sovereign male power. In what we refer to as Catherine of Aragon's will, she left jewellery to her daughter, Mary. Is that jewellery in Mary's list of jewels? Would Mary have worn that jewellery once she became queen? It's such an interesting question and really tantalising, but unfortunately, we don't know because the pieces that you're referring to, which are the collar that Catherine of Aragon bought with her from Spain, that doesn't appear, unfortunately, and neither does the cross necklace, which... She was also bequeathed by her mother. So it's frustrating. This is quite often the case is that jewels sometimes the trail goes cold and you can no longer firmly pinpoint when a piece is a part of the collection. So I would assume that those pieces were still owned by Mary, given their sentimental value more than anything else. But we can't pinpoint them in her inventory, unfortunately. And moving back to the main period of your study, the century from the mid-15th to mid-16th, have you spotted any examples of jewels made for queens that partner in some ways the king's jewels? Yes, there are examples. I think one that's an interesting example to note, actually, is the wedding ring of Margaret of Anjou, which we know had been recast by Henry VI, by his favourite goldsmith, Matthew Philip. And it had originally been the ring with which Henry himself was crowned with in Paris when he was a child. So I think that's quite an interesting example and one that I like to talk about a lot because we don't give Margaret of Anjou the recognition or the attention that she deserves. So I think that is a good example to pinpoint. When one looks at portraits of the period, there's clearly a relationship between jewellery and dress in descriptions of what queens are wearing. There was clothing that included jewels. Did jewels work alongside the Queen's wardrobe to signify her status? What can we conclude about that integration of jewellery and clothing? Yeah, so it's very important, actually, combined. And I think what's quite interesting is when we look at portraits of Catherine Parr and Jane Seymour, is we can see the way in which jewels and clothing physically marry together. So if we look at portraits of Catherine Parr, for example, I'm thinking in particular about the portrait in the National Portrait Gallery, in which she wears a black feathered cap. And we can actually see the jeweled aglets or jeweled pins on her dress, which were used to 
physically pin items of clothing together. And similarly, I think we can see something similar in Jane Seymour's portraits. So I think that's a very good indication or a very good physical, tangible explanation of how they come together. And again, we see examples in the very, very few surviving accounts of Anne Boleyn, where we see that she was paying her embroiderer, William Ibgrave, to embroider pearls onto her clothes as well. So there is some evidence of that. And portraiture, for sure, provides us with the most obvious examples of that. And you mentioned earlier when we were talking about the IHS, that it could be an example of speaking to Jane's priorities about her faith, about her allegiance to Catherine. Is it right to understand jewellery to speak to a queen's interests? And is that what they were using them to do in some way? Is that a fair way of understanding it? Or are we kind of ascribing too much agency to these things which are really about showing off wealth? No, I think that's absolutely fair and accurate. And we know more about that in the instances of some queens than others. But certainly, I always come back to Catherine Parr because we know a lot about her in terms of her jewels. But I think that her jewel collection does demonstrate this quite nicely. And we see things in her collection, for example, buttons that were shaped like Catherine wheels. So I think that's a very obvious play on her name, which is nice. And again, the same with, I talked about earlier, her interest in royalty. And again, her jewel collection pinpoints this perfectly, not only with the crown brooch, but we also know that in her collection, she had a brooch containing the image of both her and Henry VIII. We know that there was another brooch in her collection, which showed a king. So I think that it is very reflective of Catherine's own personal interests. And certainly, I'm sure that the same could be said of other queens as well. And Catherine Parr is an interesting example because we know she's a Protestant. And I wonder whether there's any dramatic shift from Catholicism to Protestantism seen reflected in jewels. Was Catholic jewellery melted down and refashioned, for example? No, it's a very interesting question, but there's certainly not any evidence of that in Catherine Parr's collection. What is interesting is that we see in Catherine Howard's collection that there is a tablet. It's described in great detail in her inventory about how it shows the Bishop of Rome running away lamenting, which I think is quite interesting that it ends up in Catherine Howard's collection because she does come from a very religiously conservative family it doesn't appear later in Catherine Parr's inventory, which again, it's intriguing as to why that is. Perhaps Catherine Parr did have that piece melted down and recast. Perhaps when Catherine Howard's jewels were confiscated from her by the king, he retained that piece. We just don't know. But it is quite interesting to consider how that particular piece ended up in Catherine Howard's collection. And exactly what was intended by it. You mentioned Anne Boleyn's embroider a little while back. What do we know about the people who made the Queen's jewels? In some instances, we know a great deal. In others, again, we don't know an awful lot. So we know that I mentioned Matthew Philip earlier in relation to Henry VI and Margaret of Anjou. So we know that he 
fulfilled several commissions for both the king and the queen. And it wasn't unusual for queens to have favourite goldsmiths. So we know that Catherine Parr, for example, favoured a Dutchman called Peter Richardson. We know that he had also worked for Jane Seymour and Anne of Cleves. We could presume that perhaps he also worked for Catherine Howard, although we don't know that for sure. In the accounts of Anne of Cleves, we see that she was using the services of several goldsmiths, including Cornelius Hayes, who also worked for both Anne Boleyn and Henry VIII. So it's quite interesting because, again, we talk about the fact that queens were expected to reuse and recycle jewels that had been used by their predecessors. But the same also appears to have been true of the people who created and crafted these pieces. And the same actually is true of Elizabeth of York. We know that there were several goldsmiths that she used in the last year of her life that were also employed by her husband, Henry VII. So it seems as though there were a select group of goldsmiths who may be used by both the king and queen and consequently their successors as well. And do we know anything about the process of commissioning? Would the queens have had much personal say in what they wore? It's something that we don't know necessarily a great deal about. We can assume that given the nature of jewels, that they are luxury goods, that they are high status goods, that generally speaking, they would have been commissioned personally by the Queen. And so we can infer from this that they would have had regular and close contact with goldsmiths. We know, for example, that in the summer of 1444, during which time Catherine Parr was Regent of England, she sent for the services of Peter Goldsmith, because there's a note in her accounts which tells us this, Frustratingly, it doesn't tell us exactly what she wanted to speak to Peter Richardson about, but we do know that it was supposedly in relation to something to do with Nicholas Kratzer, who had, of course, been responsible for the creation of the astronomical clock at Hampton Court. So we also know that Catherine had a huge interest in clocks and watches and timepieces. So it's tantalising to consider she might have wanted to speak to Peter Richardson about creating something like this for her. But that's really one of the main examples we've got of a queen specifically requesting the presence of a goldsmith. But we can assume that would have been something that would have happened quite frequently. Let's think also then about the process of transmission. We've had the example of Catherine Ragan leaving jewels to Mary. And these as we've distinguished the difference between the Queen's personal jewels and the crown jewels. What can these bequests tell us about a Queen's relationships? They tell us about who she valued, who she held near and close to her at the end of her life. And we see, obviously, with Catherine of Aragon, that she leaves her two most precious pieces of jewellery to her daughter, If we think a bit later about Anne of Cleves, what is quite interesting about her is that not necessarily in terms of her jewellery, but her primary concern was actually her servants. So wills are also can be a way of rewarding those who've shown loyalty. And we see that in Anne's bequests, 
of jewellery. She All of the bequests she makes are of rings, which is quite interesting because rings could be symbolic of many things. Friendship, signs of love and affection. They could convey messages, reward good service. And we see, for example, that Anne leaves gifts of rings, not only to her family, so her brother, her sister-in-law, but also to women with whom she would have come to know whilst she was at Henry VIII's court. So people like Catherine Willoughby, the Duchess of Suffolk, people like the Countess of Arundel. So again, it tells us a lot about a queen's network and those who she was choosing to leave a token of remembrance at the end of her life. By contrast to queens like Catherine Parr, and we know that her will was made orally, in her final days or hours, and that she doesn't make any kinds of bequests at all. She just leaves all of her property to her husband, Thomas Seymour. I suspect that's probably actually because for some reason she was unprepared or she wasn't expecting to die at that time. And so had she been so, perhaps she would have chosen to bequeath her property differently. Also, I suppose there is the fact that under law, married women didn't technically own property, which is why we have to be careful about saying it's Catherine of Aragon's will, because she's very clear that it's not a will because she's still married as far as she's concerned. But she's having her cake and eating it because she is also leaving things to specifically named people. Exactly. Catherine Parr does always seem to have been somewhat enthralled to Thomas Seymour. So perhaps that's part of it as well. (laughs) Yes, yes, definitely. I mean, I suppose the other question is, would different rules have applied to bequests left by a queen depending on whether the king was still alive? Well, presumably, but it's difficult to say during this period because the only examples we've got of queen's wills during this period come from Margaret of Anjou and Elizabeth Woodville, By the time that they both make their wills, both of their husbands had died and both were living in severely restricted financial circumstances. And then Catherine of Aragon, as you say, she didn't technically classify her will as a will. And Anne of Cleves, her will is the only surviving Queen's will in this period that is perhaps reflective of what one might expect to find in a Queen's will and how one might bequeath her property. But yes, Henry VIII is dead by this time. So it's really difficult to say. And what about the role of gift giving during a Queen's lifetime? Did the Queen's have pieces made to give to others or do we have examples of them giving things that were already in their possession to those around them? Yes, so gift giving was an expected part of queenship during this period, well, both before and beyond. And yes, we do have examples. What's quite interesting is that, generally speaking, queens weren't necessarily commissioning pieces to give to their favourites or their networks as gifts. They would quite often, in the same way that queens were expected to recycle the jewels of their predecessors, they quite often recycled gifts as well. And this was a way of saving funds for starters, but it was also seen as a sign of favour to receive an item that had been the Queen's personal property. So we see an example of this in 1535 when 
Anne Boleyn makes Lord Grey a gift of a belt, which had been her own personal property. And again, the value of this gift was seen not necessarily in the fact that it was a belt, but that it had been of the Queen's own wearing. And there are numerous examples of this during this period that we see. So to receive a gift of a jewel from a queen was quite a rarity, really, because we know from later gift rolls from the reigns of Elizabeth I, for example, that more often than not, plate was given. And we see this with Henry VIII as well, actually. So to receive a jewel was a huge privilege, but one that had actually been owned by the queen herself was a real sign of favour. We've rather dropped that, haven't we? We now think that to give somebody something that you owned already is not the done thing. I feel like we need to encourage that sense of, look, here I'm giving you something and my essence is in it. (laughs) Exactly that, yes. (laughs) This isn't really the focus of your work, but I'm just curious if there's any evidence that's come up in what you've done. I'm conscious that we're very familiar with the devices that Henry VIII's wives adopted, for example, Catherine of Aragon and pomegranates is one that springs to mind. and. We know in portraiture that some of her supporters wore things that depicted this. Henry Guilford wears a cloth, a gown, doublet, I think it is, with a pomegranate on it. Do you have any sense whether the jewels of queens translated in some fashion to style trends among more ordinary people? I think, yes, in some ways, particularly in the instance of Catherine of Aragon with the pomegranate. That is the most famous example, of course. And yeah, so there was a silver gilt chape or something that was used to cover the point of a sword or a scabbard that was found in the Thames in, I think it was the 1980s, which is now in the Museum of London. And that contains on the one side a tiny Tudor rose and on the other a tiny pomegranate, of course, the symbol of Catherine of Aragon. So certainly it was a way of subjects demonstrating their loyalty to the king and queen. Whether this actually translated to the lower classes of society, I suspect maybe not, possibly only because of financial aspects. But we certainly see that in the cases of the nobility, that they were able to use these symbols as ways of demonstrating their loyalty. Well, this has been an amazing survey. I've got one last question for you, which is to collect together our thoughts. In what way do you think jewels contribute to the individual and collective iconography of queens? I think that they really underpin a queen's identity, both as an individual and as a consort. And they really exemplify her status, her magnificence, her power and her authority. They could be used to convey whichever message a queen wanted to convey to her subjects, but also to posterity. When we think about image creation and portraits, these quite often, the surviving portraits of queens we have really magnify and exemplify the way in which queens wanted to be remembered by posterity. And so I think we can take a great deal from them. But they really do personify sovereignty, but within the expected boundaries of these queens as consorts rather than as regnant queens. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for giving us an insight into this area that 
is something that we see so often when we look at these pictures of these women, and yet we take it for granted and we don't bring it to mind. And you've helped us to think a little bit more about the meaning of the jaws and what they can tell us and where we can find out about them. And anyone who wants to know more should pick up a copy of Nicola Tallis's book, which is called All the Queen's Jaws. I'll remind you of All the Queen's Jaws, 1445 to 1548, power, majesty and display. Thank you so much for that. Pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. to my producer Rob Weinberg my researcher Esther Arnott and Joseph Knight who edited this episode and thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit we're always eager to hear your suggestions for podcast subjects so drop me a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on Twitter at notjusttudors also if you're in need of an extra hit between podcasts do sign up to our newsletter Tudor Tuesday details of how to do that are in the notes below this podcast and please rate rank bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen including on spotify it really helps more people find not just the tutors you can't really be proud of yourself if you don't know your history Those were the words of Nelson Mandela and the foundation of a new podcast from The Times and The Sunday Times, Your History. Join me, Anna Temkin, Deputy Obituaries Editor of The Times, each week as we explore the astonishing lives that have shaped our own lives. Your History, available wherever you find your podcasts. History is full of extraordinary people the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.